It is good to be with you this morning. Um, I get the opportunity to speak. Uh, usually Luke asked me on this Sunday to, uh, to be in his absence, and so I'm always grateful for the opportunity to come and, and share with you uh, here at Whitestone uh, the message that God has laid on my heart uh, to share with you. Uh, so we'll dive into that here shortly. But before we do that, why don't we start with a word of prayer? Would you pray with me? Father, we are, um, Lord, humbled in your presence. God, we are mindful um, that your word is true, that you promise that you are here with us when we are gathered in your name. So we do that. We have gathered in your name this morning, so we welcome you. Thank you for the worship, uh, God, that the worship team that has led us uh, so beautifully as we have um, showered you with our praise. Um, God, would you accept that as an offering uh, to you from us? Now, God, as we dive into your word, would you speak to our hearts, um, God, that which you want us to hear, Um, something, hopefully, God, that we will, uh, that will change us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray this prayer. Amen. So I want to share with you a uh, message this morning out of the gospel of John. We're going to look at, if you need a Bible, I think they're coming down the aisle, raise your hand and they'll get you a copy of God's Word, because we will be looking at it this morning in uh, the Gospel of John. I'm going to share with you a message um, on the feeding of the 5,000, a very familiar passage, a very familiar uh, miracle uh, act in the life of Jesus Christ while he walked on this earth. You probably know this, but the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels of Jesus. The four gospel writers all included the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle um, that all four gospels record. Now, that in and of itself ought to tell us that it's a pretty important event in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And a casual reading might cause us to miss some of the things that we we can certainly learn, certainly pull out of this passage. And because it's a familiar passage, sometimes we read it and we we don't really dive into it. So I want to do that this morning. I want to dive into that passage, and I want us to maybe use a little bit of our imagination mixed with the culture of the day, mixed in what we know the gospel writers record, and find out maybe something that will help change who we are, make us more like our Savior. Um, as I'm thinking about that, what is happening going into this miracle, I can't help but reflect back on the time when I was in college uh, just a couple years ago. Um, I I lied, I'm sorry. Um, Several years ago. uh, When I was in college, I went to what many people, many students at the school referred to as a suitcase college, a small Christian college in Birmingham, Alabama, thus the accent. Um, the, The school was known as a suitcase college because most of the students probably live within a two-hour two radius of the school. So on the weekend, everybody packed their suitcases, mostly full of dirty clothes because they were college students, and they would go home to mom to wash the clothes and get some good food to eat for the weekend. So the campus itself was pretty deserted during the week, over the weekends. And I grew up in Indiana, which was about six hours north of Birmingham, so I didn't go home every weekend. But when I did, I always looked for somebody to go with me. Not because I didn't want to go alone. The purpose was I wanted to show them my hometown. I took pride in where I grew up. 
the church I went to, the high school I graduated with, my parents, the home, the area. And so to be able to take somebody home and show them, it, it just really bubbled up pride. And I got to hopefully connect with that friend on a deeper level because they got to connect with my roots a little bit. So that story reminds me of where this passage, what we're going to look at in the Gospel of John, is going. Because in this, in this uh, account in Jesus' life, there are three of his disciples, Philip, Peter, and Andrew, are taking Jesus and the disciples home, okay? Now, if you just read this and you read the passage, you're going to skip right over to the fact that these three disciples call Bethsaida their home. They grew up there. Their families still live there. So they're getting the opportunity to take Jesus home. We're going to get to that in just a minute, okay? But remember that because it's important to understand um, that that some of the disciples, where they're going for this miracle, call this place home. Now, John chapter 6 takes place over two days in the life of Jesus. Two days are recorded. You probably don't really realize that as you're reading it, but it's important to remember that because to truly grasp the full meaning of this miracle, you have to know that the revelation that Jesus is about to make on the day that follows this miracle is pretty profound. And he uses this miracle to illustrate what he knows he's going to say on the following day. Because on day two of John chapter six, Jesus steps out in front of the Jewish leaders and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. So Jesus in his mind, he knows he's going to say that. He knows he's going to reveal himself as the bread of life tomorrow. So what a better way to illustrate and set the stage for that than to show it through taking something as simple as bread and showing how it gives life to everybody. So keep that in mind. John the Baptist, most likely, according to most scholars, has just been murdered, just been killed by Herod. And so Jesus and his disciples are probably grieving somewhat. So Jesus felt like, well, this would be a good time to take my followers and withdraw. Let's go on a little retreat, much like the men are this weekend. Let's get away from the crowds. Let's get away from the hustle and bustle and get our batteries recharged. The Passover was nearing. It's a busy time for the Jewish nation, the Israelites, and many of them are traveling from the north to from the small communities around the sea and even the smaller communities further north. They're traveling down to Jerusalem, which was a uh, normal pilgrimage for them to make at the time of Passover. So the crowds were, fought, were not only following Jesus, but they were traveling. And so you've got these large crowds traveling and as, that, as they're heading to Jerusalem for Passover, and that is kind of what's going on in the culture as this scenario that we're about to talk about unfolds. So if you have your Bible or if you need to follow on the screen, the words will be there. We're going to read um, out of John's gospel, the account, and we'll refer back to maybe some of the other gospel writers that record this as well um, to help us kind of get a flavor of what's going on in this passage or in this miracle. Beginning in verse 1 in chapter 6, John records these words. He says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. 
the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. After his disciples, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled them filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. So what I want us to do is I want us to take what we know from Scripture and we mix it with what's going on in the culture. And I want us to sort of paint a picture this morning of what's going on in this miracle. And I want to look at three different elements, three different people or groups of people that, are, that make, up this, and I, make up this miracle. And then I want us to pull out of that story, hopefully something that we can apply to our lives that will make a difference from this teaching into 2017 where we are today. So I want us to, as we begin to paint this picture, I want us to understand that we're going to use a little bit of biblical imagination here. Some things that we don't find recorded in John, maybe recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or it might be understood of the culture of the day. And I want us to begin painting this picture, looking at the crowd of people, which many scholars believe it recorded that it's 5,000, but because of the culture of the day, men were the only ones that were counted. The women and children, they didn't count. So most likely, as the scripture says, that it was a a group of 5,000 men, and then it also says there were women and children present. So some scholars believe that this could be a group of maybe 10 to 15,000 people that were gathered on the shore that morning. So we don't know exactly. We know that there were 5,000 men. So we're going to go with the feeding of the 5,000, just like it's recorded in Scripture. But we do know this fact about the crowd. It was large. It was a large crowd, and they were following Jesus. And there are certainly many needs present. Anytime Jesus spoke to a crowd or walked his way through a crowd or had interaction with people, there were needs present. So we know that there were needs, both physical and spiritual, in this large group. Now, this eventual gathering of this mass of people in one area most likely took place by word of mouth. You know, when not too long ago, for you young people here, I'm looking around, we've got a good number of young people that probably you depend on a social media invite to to know where you're going to spend the weekend, what you're going to do this weekend. Or maybe you get a text from somebody that they want to go meet you at Chili's for lunch on Thursday. You know how we did it when I was your age? We mailed an invitation. You are invited. They had a stamp on it, and it came two or three days later after I dropped it in the mailbox. That happened a few years ago. 
They don't do that anymore. And that's certainly not what was happening here because they didn't have text messages. They didn't have social media. They didn't have plans that they wrote on the calendar. Word of mouth. Yeah. Hey, did you hear Jesus is going to be in the area? Did you hear that this self-proclaimed Messiah is coming through the area? And so word of mouth spread, and the, the, the crowd began to grow, and it, it, somebody had a need, and they said, I want to join that crowd because I might find healing. So there were no social media invites. There was nothing saying that Jesus was coming other than people saying, chattering, saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be here. He's coming through our area. So the crowd grew. Now, we do know, we, well, we can probably assume that the, the group was made up of probably three different classes of people. One is the people that knew Jesus. They had had some kind of interaction with Jesus already, so they had started the spreading the word of mouth, Jesus is coming. So they were in the group. Then you've got the group of people that they had heard about Jesus. They didn't have any firsthand account that who Jesus was, but they had heard what other people had said, and they had heard that Jesus is coming, so they joined the crowd too. And I have to believe, it, again, this is not recorded in Scripture, but I have to believe that in a group that large, there were probably some skeptics too. See, there were a lot of skeptics in Jesus' day that didn't believe, even when they saw the miracles, even when they knew that what he was doing and what he was saying matched there was probably people in that group that didn't believe, but they wanted to say, they wanted to see if what they had heard was true, so they joined the crowd. So you've got this group that's swelling, and it's, it's growing as, as, the, as they're marching along, and they're following Jesus, trying to meet up with him. They were hoping that they were going to meet this Messiah that had come into the world, that the prophets had talked about? Could this really be the one the prophets told us about? Could this be the Messiah that would come and make all things new, that would break the reign of Rome that was being held over them? Could this be the one? The day marched on, and so did the people. The boat that was carrying the disciples and Jesus was drawing closer to the shore. And towards the end of the day, the boat beached, and the crowd gathered on the hillside. The disciples take Jesus off the boat and march him through the crowd. I'm sure at that point, the disciples were probably a little frustrated. They had the hopes that they were going to a remote place where nobody would be and they could just spend some time with their master. But the crowd was hungry. The crowd was looking for their Messiah. The crowd was looking for a touch. Many of them were looking for a physical touch. Some were looking for a spiritual touch. And hopefully, those touches would all lead into an eternal touch. But what they got was more than what they would ever imagine when the day began. So I want to push pause there for just a moment. We're going to come back to that crowd and talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I want to look even deeper into that crowd to one individual that John records. And that's the young boy that John talks about who had the sack lunch. And I'm going to name him Josiah, okay? So it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that his name is Josiah. I just want to personalize it a little bit. You remember, some of you might remember when you went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school when you were a kid and, and your teacher told you, you know, when you recite John 3.16, make it personal. 
For God so loved Bruce that he gave his only begotten son that if Bruce believes in him, he should not perish but have everlasting life. That's kind of what I'm doing here, okay? So this, we're using the name Josiah to make it a little bit personal. Josiah probably began his day like any other day. He woke to some rustling in the kitchen. He got ready for the day, knew he was going to be gone for most of the day. He was just going to go hang out with some friends. So he ran to the kitchen. His mom had a sack lunch, said, Josiah, this is for the day now. This is all you're going to get to eat. So make sure it lasts you all day long. Protect it. Don't leave it laying someplace. Just make sure nobody gets it because that's all you get. I don't have anything else to give you. He grabbed the sack lunch and out the door he went. Running around the corner of the house, his mom following him, yelling, now, Josiah, don't forget, take care of your lunch. He turns and he catches the eye of his mom and his, her wave, and he says, mom, don't worry, I'm okay. And off he, take, off he goes. Running down the street, he begins to see this crowd that's gathering. He doesn't know what's going on. He hears the chatter about something about this Jesus and his followers that are going to be in the area. And so he he sees some friends and he starts walking and joining this mass that's growing. He's got his lunch by his side and he's traveling the road. And before you know it, the crowd stops and they're seated, sitting up on a hillside. And he looks down, oh gosh, I've been so excited for the day. I haven't even eaten any of my lunch. But he looks around and he sees, well, there's nobody else got anything to eat. So I better not open my bag of goodies and eat in front of them. So he thinks, I'll just eat it on the way home. So he puts it down by his side. Now, most likely, like any kid, the crowd stops. They're waiting on Jesus to come off the boat. He's probably somewhat interested, but, you know, he's probably kicking rocks, throwing things back and forth with his friends or just hanging out. And all of a sudden, through the corner of his eye, he sees some, an older man walking towards him. And he recognizes, I think that was one of the guys on the boat. And Andrew comes up and kneels down to Josiah and says, young boy, what is that in your bag? Oh, that's, that's my lunch, sir. Would you give it to me? Because Jesus needs your lunch. Josiah, in the back of his mind, he hears his mom saying, protect that lunch. Don't let go of it. That's all you get for the day. But something inside of him goes, you know what? I need to give it to this man because he said Jesus needs it. So maybe it was reluctantly. I don't know. But however, he takes his bag and he gives it to Jesus. Let's push pause there for just a moment. We're going to come back to Josiah in just a moment because that brings us to where the final piece of this puzzle lands, and that is on the person of Jesus himself. So Jesus um, is in the boat with his disciples, and what we know of this account with Jesus is only found in these four Gospels. There's nothing el anywhere else in Scripture that talks about this, how Jesus reacted in this story, other than what we have in these four Gospels. So we know that because, as I mentioned, because it was recorded in all four Gospels, it must be a very important piece of the ministry of Jesus. And as I mentioned, he was seeking a time of healing, a time of uh, withdrawal with his disciples because of what had happened to John the Baptist. So they were withdrawing to 
the little fishing village of Bethsaida. Bethsaida, situated on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, as I mentioned, it's the home of uh, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. So Jesus says, boys, we're going to go across the sea, and we're going to get away from these crowds, and we're going to have a time of retreat. So he said, let's go to Bethsaida. So the disciples, at least these three, they knew where they were going. They knew how to get home. So they pointed the bow of the boat towards Bethsaida and sat down and started singing, row, row, row your boat as they were traveling across the sea. So as they're traveling, they see the crowd along the shore gathering and growing and following. But they knew they were headed for Bethsaida. And as the boat beached on the shore, the crowd had swollen to at least 5,000, most likely twice that much. The disciples escorted Jesus off the boat through the crowd, but there's an interesting storyline that John doesn't record, but Matthew and Mark does. It says that in Matthew and Mark that when Jesus stepped off the boat into the crowd, it said he had compassion on the crowds. And even Matthew says that not only did he teach the crowds, but he healed their sick. So we know that there was this need that was present in the, in the crowd of, of physical healing, of spiritual healing. There was many needs present. And while the disciples were probably frustrated that the crowd was there, Jesus, his response was one of compassion, one of sympathy, so he instructed the disciples to have everybody sit down on the hillside. He knew that there was the physical need. It was, it was about supper time. He knew there was the physical need of they needed something to eat. So he asked the disciples, he asked Philip, he said, you know, Philip, you're from this area. Is there a place we can buy some food for these people to eat? Now, Jesus was saying that, as Scripture records, to, to test him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He knew what not only was going to do then, but he knew what was coming the next day. So he said, Philip, is there some place we can buy some food? And, of course, Philip, you know, and his, you know, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. All the list of excuses that start coming up. But he says, Andrew, why don't you walk through the crowd and see if you can find some food? So Andrew comes up to Josiah, back to where we were a minute ago, and he says, hey, Josiah, or he says, hey, little boy, didn't know his name. He said, what do you got in your bag there? Josiah pulls out, well, I got some bread, you know, five little pieces of bread. And, and just a side note here, because of the, what was in his sack lunch, tells us that Josiah probably came from a low-income family. Probably didn't have a whole lot. And so that's why this was all he had for the day. He had five little pieces of bread, you know, probably not much bigger than that. And he had some fish. Well, I didn't want to bring real fish because... <laughs> You know, they'd probably be stinking by now after the 8 o'clock service. So, so he had some fish, um, and he had some bread. And I'm sure when, the, when, he opened, when Andrew opened that bag, the disciples started punching each other and going, what would you even bring that up here for? That's not enough to feed all these people. The disciples were doubting, but Jesus delivered. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He delivered, and with a simple prayer, he gave thanks, and this little basket of fish and bread became enough 
to feed the masses of people. Not only feed them to where they were full, it says, but when Jesus said, pick up the leftovers, each disciple returned to Jesus with their basket full. They got a to-go box. Now, that's what I call some good curb service right there. You get, start with some Swedish fish and a few little crackers, and you end up with a to-go box that's going to feed you for the rest of the day. Jesus showed what he was going to proclaim the next day, that he was the bread of life. So with those three stories, with that, the three stories that are intertwined to make the bigger story of the feeding of the 5,000, what do we learn from that? What are some practical applications? You're thinking, yeah, I'm glad we finally got to this point. What are some practical applications that we can take as followers of Christ? Let's look back at these three different sections, these three different elements of this miracle and see what we can learn from it. Let's go back to the crowd of people. The crowd of people, most likely, as we know, as we read in Scripture, they had a need of hunger. They needed their hunger satisfied. Not only did they have the physical need of hunger, but they also had many other physical needs that Jesus healed as some of the gospel writers record. But there's also a spiritual need in that group. Now, how do you know? How do, you're asking, how do you know there's a spiritual need? It doesn't say there's a spiritual need. Well, I have an idea. Again, I'm just using my imagination here because I believe that everybody walked in, that walked into this room today has some sort of spiritual need. When you get a group of people together, there's probably, whether we want to admit it or not, there are spiritual needs present. So I have to have, I have to believe that in this group mass of at least 5,000 people, there were quite a bit of spiritual needs that were present because they had heard about this Messiah that had come into the world and they knew that if it was true, he was the one that could meet and satisfy their spiritual needs. So from the physical need of hunger, the physical need of maybe some healing that Jesus was doing and the spiritual need that was most undoubtedly present as well, they found that their Messiah could meet any of their needs through the way he performed this miracle. So here's how we're pulled into this part of the story. We're pulled into it this way. Like the mass of people, we too are in need of something that we cannot provide on our own. They couldn't provide the healing on their own. They couldn't meet their own spiritual needs on their own. They were out in the middle of this nowhere, and they didn't have anything to eat. They couldn't provide something to eat on their own. So Jesus steps in and shows that he can meet their, even their most basic needs. And from that, we understand that we are much like that mass of people. We are in need of the supernatural to interact with the natural. We're in need, like that mass of people, of Jesus, God's presence, overwhelming our everyday lives. We're in need of the magnificence of God's glory to overtake the mundane, mundane circumstances that we face every day. We're in need of a divine touch. Every one of us, every day, we need to have the presence of God in our lives. But there's something even more pressing than that that we all have a desire for, and that is the forgiveness of sin. You know, sin, according to Scripture, is that which we do against God that separates us from him. 
So when we have sin in our lives, we are out of fellowship. We are grieving his Holy Spirit, and we are out of fellowship with God. On our own, we cannot find that forgiveness. But as we come to Jesus, as we find that not only he is the bread, he is also the Messiah, and he wants to forgive us of that sin. And that is our greatest need. Yeah, we're going to have our physical needs met. His word promises us that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And that means even the basic needs that we have every day. But the most important need is that forgiveness of sin. Psalm 32 says it this way, blessed is the one, and that means happy in the Hebrew. That means happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You want to find true joy in life? You want to find true happiness? It's not found in things. It's not found in pleasing yourself. It's found in the forgiveness that's given only through Jesus Christ. We're all created with that need for grace. We're all created like many of those people, like all those people in that mass of people that Jesus ministered to. They were in need of grace. They were in need of a touch from their Messiah. And so too, in 2017, we're in need of a touch from that Messiah as well. So we learn from the group that we're just, we're much like them. We're in need of forgiveness of sin. We're in need of a touch from the Savior. John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we are faithful to confess, God will be faithful to forgive. That's the, that's the bottom line. In the forgiveness and the need of that forgiveness, we have to know that the bread of life, Jesus himself, is the one that offers that forgiveness. So that's what we find in that group of people that we can relate to. We're all in need of that. But then we come to this young boy, Josiah. What do we learn from this young boy in the story? We learn that his role in the story teaches us some important truths. One is that we all have something that God wants, to get, wants us to give to him. We all have something that God wants to use. We have resources. We have gifts. We have talents. And God is asking us to surrender those things to him. And through our willingness to surrender, to give to God that, thing, that which is we consider, maybe consider necessary, God will use to bless other people around us when we open up our lives. See, this is really how we live our lives most of the time. We, we take our things, we take the things that are closest to us, and we hold on to them so tightly, and we hold them close, and we think, I'm, I can't let go of this. If I, if I open up my hands, somebody's going to see who I really am. So we hold on tightly. Maybe it's a relationship that we hold on to. Maybe it's our career that we've worked so hard to build and we don't want to let go of it, so we clench it with our fist and we hold it tightly. Maybe it's um, uh, the fact of our family or maybe it's something like sin that we value too much and we clench it in our fist. And God says, will you release it to me? but we hold on to it. 
Josiah gives us the beautiful picture of what it means to surrender, to give that which was so important, his basic needs for the day, with the voice of his mom in the back of his head saying, take care of this. This is all you're going to get for the day. So he went beyond his physical need, and he said, yes, he, would, he surrendered what he had. His most prized possession for the day, he gave it to Jesus. And so we learn this aspect of surrender to our Father through Josiah. So what is it you're holding on to today? Is there some sin that you have held on to for so long that if you open your hands, it might be embarrassing, it might show God that you're weak? Do we hold on to those things that we value so much that in truth, if God knew, but he does, he knows already. He knows what we've got in our hands. All he's asking is, will you let go of it? Will you give it to me so that I can not only bless you, but your life can be a blessing to so many other people? He asked us to let go of it. And that brings us to the third piece of this puzzle picture that we've been painting this morning and that is the life of Jesus we talked about him a minute ago and his part his plays the main character role in this story he is the Messiah in Matthew and Mark it records as I mentioned that when Jesus stepped out of the boat and onto the shore he saw the crowd that was gathered and he had compassion on the crowds now, it may not be recorded in the other Gospels, but because of his actions, we know that he had compassion. He had compassion because he looked beyond his own needs. He was grieving. And I don't know about you, but if I had gone through the loss of a, a loved one or the loss of a close friend or a close associate, probably the last thing I would want to do is find a way I could meet needs, people's needs around me. I'm probably going to be withdrawn myself and try to heal up. But Jesus is not that way. He steps off the boat. And even in his, the humanity side of him that's grieving, even in that, he has compassion on the crowds. And I love, there's a passage in Nehemiah that um, illustrates really who God is in the midst of all that we, whether it be the sin in our lives or whether it be something we're holding on to, God shows us in Nehemiah who he really is. In chapter 9, as Nehemiah is publicly confessing the sins of a nation before a holy God, and out in the public square, he stands and he says, but they, our ancestors, he's talking about the Israelites that had gone before them, that had been released from Israel, I mean, released from Egypt. He sta Nehemiah stands up and says, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. He's talking to God here. He said, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. And then he says this, But you, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We just sang about that a minute ago. Did you catch that? Slow to anger 
abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. What a picture of the beauty and the compassion of the God that we serve. Some of us today need to experience the compassion of a loving Savior. The compassion that is conveyed in his acceptance of who you are. The compassion that is conveyed in the forgiveness of your sin. The compassion that's conveyed in the redemption that he provided on that cross. And the compassion that gives you a second chance to the life he's called you to. So not only do we see the compassion of Jesus, but we see in this miracle that God's promises to each of us, to all of mankind, are fulfilled in Jesus. Remember in John 6, 35 that I shared with you a minute ago, in day two of John chapter six, where Jesus stood and said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He claimed that he was God. And we know from Scripture, just like it says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all, God's, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. He is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. And this miracle, this, we call it a simple miracle because he took something simple as bread and fish and did the miraculous with it. And if he did that, we know that all the forces of nature are at his disposal. Everything that he created is under his authority. And since that's the case, we are confident, or we should be confident, that he can handle whatever's going on in our lives today. Whatever you brought into this room today, God knows it. Whatever you hold in your hands that you don't want to let go of, God knows it. And he wants to forgive you. And he wants to give you that life. Not only life here and now, but eternal life to come. John 10.10 says, I have come, and Jesus is speaking here, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. God's desire for you is that you would have life. And the source of that life would be the bread of life. And this miracle shows us that no matter where we are in this life, as long as we have breath in our lungs, we have access to the bread of life. And it's open and it's free. And he wants to give it to each of us. So I don't know what you hold in your hands today that God's asking you to surrender. But I do know this. I know he wants you to surrender it. He wants you to give it up to him so that you can experience the life of abundance that he promises. You know, this summer, in just less than a month now, there's going to be masses of people that will just, they'll be parking right over here and catching a bus to ride about 15 or 20 miles out to Aaron Hills for the U.S. Open. And there'll be estimated some 35 to 40,000 people a day, massive people moving across that golf course to catch a glimpse of their favorite golfer who hopefully will win a temporary crown. Crown the king of the U.S. Open for 2017. And this mass of people, they'll move and they'll follow and they'll chatter and they'll say, oh, there's Jordan Spieth or oh, there's Phil Mickelson. 
I'll, I'll be a part of that crowd. I have to <laughs> confess, okay? <laughs> one day, one day I'll be out there and uh, uh, it'll be fun, but I'll be part of that crowd. And while we do that, I, you know, I kind of joke around about that, but in our society, we do chase a lot of different things that really don't amat- matter, amount to a whole lot. They're temporal. How much more important is it for you and me to be a part of the crowd that's chasing things that are eternal, like life, like abundant life, and like the bread of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the bread of life. Thank you that your invitation is always open, Lord, to come, to taste your bread, to sample, to be surrounded, to jump headfirst into the life that you promise. God, we confess that we chase so many things on this earth that really don't matter. And we, when we catch them, sometimes we hold on to them and We're not willing to let go of them because we prize them too much. God, help us to be able to release to you the things in our life that don't matter, the things in our life that you want to use to be a blessing to so many other people, to let go of the things that separate us from you, like the sin that can so easily entangle us. God, give us the ability to just to cast it at your feet, surrender it to you, and say yes. To your life. Father, thank you for meeting with us here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in this place. And God, my prayer is that when we leave this place, we will be different because we have had an encounter with the Messiah, with the bread of life. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we pray it in your name. Amen. So let me share with you as a way of benediction as we depart this morning. If we were to flip back just a couple pages to the beginning of John's gospel, John says this in, chap- in verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, when he's describing that in the beginning was the Word, which was Jesus, and the Word was with God. Down verse 4, he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. I mentioned a minute ago, we, we chase a lot of things in this life. We chase things that really don't matter. My prayer to you, fellow brothers and sisters of Whitestone, is that this week, we won't chase the things that don't matter but we'll chase the things that lead to life and life eternal, beginning with the source, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you.